Welcome to the fourth session in an eight-part introduction to Indigenous Relations in BC. In this session, I'll talk a little more about Aboriginal rights and title, and introduce the concept of veto. For a very important subject, this session is almost irresponsibly short. I'll start with a question I'm asked a lot. Do First Nations have a veto? By that I mean, can they force the BC government to reject a proposal or stop a policy change? The short and way oversimplified answer is that government says no, and First Nations say yes. Governments rely on the court decisions to date, which have not supported the concept of a First Nations veto. First Nations point to their assertions of Aboriginal title as the source of authority for a veto, and the wording of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The UN Declaration speaks to needing free, prior, and informed consent from Indigenous peoples for major projects and government initiatives. I'll go into more on that in the fifth session. You'll also hear the word accommodation in the context that the province has the duty to consult with First Nations and, where appropriate, accommodate them. This is a necessarily broad term. It can mean anything from modifying proposals to avoid infringing on Aboriginal rights to providing financial compensation for infringements that can't be avoided. That takes us to Aboriginal title. I'll suggest that in the one instance in BC where a court has found Aboriginal title so far, the province's obligation for consultation on certain issues is so deep as to be an effective, if not legally explicit, Aboriginal veto. I'll put some background to that. In the late 1960s, the Nishka people in northwest BC, represented by Frank Calder, sued the provincial government for recognition of Aboriginal title on their traditional lands. While the suit wasn't successful, it set the groundwork for the Nishka Treaty negotiations, the BC Treaty process, and subsequent title cases. And Mr. Calder went on to be elected as a member of BC's Legislative Assembly and appointed as a cabinet minister. From 1984 to the Supreme Court of Canada decision in 1997, that's 13 years, folks, the Kitsan and Wet'suwet'en people of northwest BC litigated for Aboriginal title to their traditional lands. This is known as the Delgamook case. While the Supreme Court made no decision on the land dispute, it indicated that another trial was necessary. And while that might seem like a win for the provincial government, the Supreme Court accepted the use of oral histories for the first time and opened the door for further title cases. And by the way, Delgamook was a title held by Earl Muldo, a Gitsan artist and hereditary chief. This led to the Silkatine decision in 2014, in which the Supreme Court of Canada found that Aboriginal title existed in a specific area of south-central BC. The provincial and Silkatine governments are still working through what that means on a day-to-day -day basis. But how does Aboriginal title differ from Aboriginal rights? Aboriginal rights are collective rights that flow from practices that have been enjoyed since before European contact. Aboriginal title refers to an inherent Aboriginal right to land or a territory. It's important to understand two things. First, the BC government and BC First Nations disagree on the definition of Aboriginal title. And I'm going to way oversimplify again by saying that BC sees Aboriginal title as a burden on crown title, 
whereas First Nations in BC see it as something much closer to absolute ownership. My apologies to both sides on this debate. Second, it's important to understand that to BC's First Nations people, Aboriginal title is much more than a concept of ownership. It's a deep responsibility for stewardship of the land and preserving its resources for future generations. I group rights and title into a broader category that I call Aboriginal interests that's inclusive of the matters covered in the Calls to Action and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, the previous BC government, reflecting its jobs plan, used an economic approach to reconciliation. That was about finding opportunities to increase the socioeconomic well-being of First Nations communities and building relationships based on financial agreements that usually involve natural resource partnerships. Uh, That's an oversimplification, but it's not far off. The current government's commitment to adopt the UN Declaration implies a broader definition of reconciliation and reference to those wider Aboriginal interests. And that calls for a bit more detailed look at the UN Declaration and the calls to action. And I'll do that in the next session. I'm Peter Walters. You've made it this far. It would be silly to stop now. Mm